Sappy Music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, December 20th, 2011. Christmas almost be upon us. Thank God. Really looking forward to it. Talk a little bit about um, what we're doing here for the programming. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and all of it is needless because God has given us a clear and understandable revelation regarding himself. The problem is is that we've got a lot of people who have ascended into uh, pulpits or planted churches who are, well, they are just not skilled at all whatsoever. Number one, in their understanding of the Christian faith. Number two, in properly handling God's word. As a result of it, they are just making up stuff and are making decisions as to whether or not they're rightly handling God's word based upon pragmatically whether or not they're able to get people to raise their hand in a congregation or if their numbers are increasing. That's not a way of determining the truth. Keep in mind, what the, the latest statistics show there's two billion Muslims in the world. If we're, you're going to make an argument that Christianity is true or that your church is being blessed by God because it's growing, uh, then we must conclude that God really, truly loves Islam and is blessing and growing it as well. You see, that's not how you, you argue. You, you, anyway, so what we do on this program is compare what people are saying to what God's Word says. We go with the idea is that God's Word is true even if it's not popular. God's word is true, even if the majority opinion within the uh, the visible church at the moment it completely contradicts what God's word says. In the situation like that, those people in the visible church who are contradicting God's word, they're not telling you the truth. And we go with the understanding that God's word is understandable. We apply sound biblical hermeneutics, basic hermeneutics, uh, using the historical grammatical method. That is The idea is that God... Use nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives to reveal 
himself to us. And uh, and you think, well, wait a second, Chris. Didn't Jesus come to us in the flesh? Yes, he did. That Jesus Christ is God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh. Well, doesn't that mean that God comes to us in person, not in words? N- no, that's not what that means. Here's the reason why. Were you there when he was born? I wasn't. It was a long time ago. I, now, I understand that I'm getting older, but I'm not quite that old. So, And I'm assuming that you're not that old either, that you weren't there when Jesus was born. Were you there when he walked on the water? Were you there when he fed the 5,000? Were you there when he um, you know, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, cast out deep? Were you there? No, you weren't, were you? Yeah, were you there when he was crucified? Nope, you weren't. Did you stick your head in the empty tomb on the very, very first Easter Sunday? Nope, you didn't do that. Uh-huh. Well, yes, well, Jesus Christ came to us in you know human flesh. Yes, he did. Not in words. That's right. He was the word made flesh. Mm, but you weren't there. Hmm. So how do we learn anything about who Jesus is and was and what he did and what he said and what he taught and what he revealed? Answer, in the words written down by the eyewitnesses. And if somebody's teaching something contrary to what the eyewitnesses recorded using their words, then they're not. that person's not telling you the truth. If somebody is telling you to, well, not pay so much close attention to those words, don't worry about that. Just have an experience of Jesus. If that's what they're telling you, they're not telling you about the biblical Jesus. In fact, what they're trying to do is... Uh, sell you a counterfeit Jesus with a counterfeit gospel, one that doesn't save. And, you know, they make a lot of money doing those things. So anyway, that it's today's visible church is a treacherous place to be. And so we ha- try to help people sort this all out. And what we do is we constantly point people back to the historical biblical Jesus, the one who bled and died on the cross for your sins and rose bodily from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's what this program's really all about. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're talking about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley that I would like to get to. I've got a brand new, uh, well, <laughs> maybe a, that's not the right way of putting it. Well, it's new to me, but I, I've got a brand new um, Christian guy, dude, um, who wants to be a Christian entertainer. And um, I'm convinced that um, this is the one of the ultimate relevant fails I have ever seen. Anyway, uh, the gentleman calls himself Michael P. Vigilante III. And um, I'm, I think rather than really being a true Christian entertainer, what he's trying to do is dethrone the folks who, uh, was it Sunseed, who came up with that song, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. Now, this, this is a worthy, um, you know, uh, well, I don't want to say attack, but this is a worthy com- competitive effort on the part of Michael P. Vigilante to dethrone Sunseed and their song, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. So we'll be looking at that. I've got a, a question that I'm going to be asking. Is syncretism with Rome possible? Is syncretism with Rome possible? I want to build off of yesterday's program and uh, play for you audio from a video of a Roman Catholic. 
who has a, a YouTube channel. This is a gentleman who has a PhD, and we're just going to listen to what he has to say. One of his favorite things to talk about is Marian apparitions and Marian dogma. And so we're just going to, you know, have, you know, here we've got uh, James Robison and others out there wanting to syncretize with uh, with the Roman Catholic Church and unify and put away our theological differences and just focus on the common ground that we apparently all have. Well, I'm just going to ask the question, is is it really possible to syncretize with Rome? Well, you'll have to listen uh, for yourself and uh, make the decision. And then we're going to, in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a Rob Bell sermon. It was his farewell address, if you would. Rob Bell this past weekend was at Mars Hill Bible Church, and he, well, delivered an epistle, a letter, a postmodern epistle, if you would. And it was his farewell address to the folks there at Mars Hill Bible Church. He really didn't give get a proper send-off or a proper opportunity to preach a proper farewell address uh, when he left Mars Hill Bible Church a few months back uh, to go to Hollywood so that he can begin work on producing his um, television program that will package and sell to the entire world his postmodern mysticism and gospel and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you thought it was bad when it was just uh, in the Christian church. Wait till it hits the airwaves and, and the cable networks and stuff like that. I, I'm i sure it'll explode out onto the scene and we will be awash in, in Rob Bell's heresy. But anyway, so we're going to be listening to that in hour number two. We've, In fact, we got so much ground to cover. On today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I think we should just get right into it. And so uh, let's uh, let's cue up the email music and we'll get into that. Dun, 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 dun. Got another email from across the pond from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent. The subject of the email that I'll be reading is entitled, The Danger of Dykstra and Todd Bentley and Anyone Else Who Preaches Healing Rather Than the Gospel. I think that officially weighs in as the longest, the longest um, email subject that I've received from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and um, let's see here. In fact, I've got two emails I want to read from Pastor Charmley, uh, two of them. I, I, I owe you two because uh, we didn't get to the, the previous one before this. But anyway, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, listening to Eric Dykstra's dangerous comments on faith in his Get Your Swagger Back talk, I was reminded of a recent case where the BBC investigated a church, and he has that in quotes, claiming to be experiencing miraculous AIDS cures. As a result of these claims, a number of HIV sufferers had done as Dykstra advises his listeners. They were acting as if they had been healed. Now, how does one act as if one has been healed? Very simply, you stop taking your medication. The result of this, of course, is extremely dangerous and sometimes fatal. By saying that those with life-threatening diseases ought to act as though they have been healed, Dykstra is behaving in a way that is possibly criminal and definitely irresponsible in the extreme. Pastor Charmley, I completely agree. Pastor Charmley then continues. He says, Todd Bentley is another more blatant manifestation of the same dangerous heresy. I note that his claims have inflated since the Florida fiasco, 
as then he only claimed that one person, conveniently in Africa rather than the United States, had been raised from the dead as a result of the meetings. I am personally still waiting for medical proof, which ought to be easy to obtain, as there are many Christians, some of a charismatic bent in the medical profession. I in fa have, in fact, met some in my time. However, I'm not holding my breath. The real danger of these claims is, however, illustrated by a worrying fact. Such churches that major on these supposed healing miracles all too often do so at the expense of the gospel. Some years ago, there was a case in Cardiff, South Wales, where a charismatic congregation were fined for distributing handbills and posters that implied that a visiting healing evangelist could cure HIV and AIDS, again, without being able to show any medical proof of these claims. What's more egregious on their part, however, was that the said handbills contain no mention of the gospel. Yeah, that's right. That is the bigger issue. It's the distraction by the bright and shiny objects. It's like, um, you know, it, it, this is the thing that's held up as the bright, shiny thing, and everybody with ADHD, spiritual ADHD, is distracted away, and there's no mention of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Absolutely, that's correct. Pastor Charlie then continues, he says, that's... Right, none at all. These meetings are billed purely as healing meetings, and all that is held out is an empty promise of physical healing. Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice are notable by their absence. Again, recently I was in a British city, and outside one of these places I saw a notice board on which was advertised a supposed healing, and there was nothing about the gospel. Great point. Great, great point. Now, another uh, Pastor Charmley uh, email that I'm that I owe you all. Pastor Charmley writes regarding Stephen Furtick's gospel track. He'd like to weigh in regarding that. Pastor Charmley writes, Dear Chris, listening to you playing Furtick's gospel track the other day on the podcast, I think I see his problem. He's got the gospel confused with giving an altar call. Uh, this is a fairly common problem with some preachers, and they think they have preached the gospel just because they have given an altar call. They are not the same thing at all. The altar call is a fairly modern American invention. Yes, that's right. But Pastor Charmley, I, as an American, I have to take responsibility. You're absolutely right. This was all part of frontier revivalism from the uh, going back to the 19th century. Anyway, he says, um, so this is an American invention which was unheard of until the 19th century and was popularized by Charles G. Finney. Uh, though the name suggests that he got the idea from the Methodists, that is not an excuse, of course, it is an explanation. If he really thinks that giving an altar call is the same as giving the gospel, will heaven help him? The call was originally a call to respond to the gospel, but recent history has led to it being tracked onto, uh, tacked onto the end of about every sermon in some churches, irrespective of what the sermon was actually about. The result is that the people are being called to respond to something that they have not actually heard. This may explain some of the confusion in the contemporary scene. I'm going to pause there for a second. He's spot on here. Because what's, what's happened is, is that the seeker-driven altar call um, has literally become... To something to the effect of like this, um, you know, let's pretend that you're at, um, you know, Perry Noble's church, and Perry Noble has valiantly and you know stuck it to all those Pharisees out there and decided to preach yet another sermon series on sex. 
Okay, and so Pat, uh, Perry Noble gets up there and he preaches and tells everybody how they're being robbed by the devil by buying into his value system, by, you know, by cheapening sex and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and you sit there and go, okay, yeah, all right, got it. And so and then he valiantly eisegetes something from the uh, the Song of Solomon. And, and at the end of it, he issues a challenge to everybody to go out there and, and to have biblical sex, okay? And so what will happen is, is that, Perry Noble, at the end of that sermon, will have a prayer time. They'll dim the lights, start playing the sappy music, and Perry Noble will then proceed with the modern, seeker-driven version of an altar call. And he'll say, now, those of you out there who feel convicted because you've bought into the devil's values regarding the topic of sex, how many of you right now want to make a commitment that you're going to follow Jesus's biblical model for sex from now on. And what will happen is, is that people will raise their hands. And of course, being a dutiful seeker driven guy, he counts everything. Nichols noses the whole bit. So what will happen is, is that the, the volunteers there at, uh, at new spring will make sure that they count every, you know, every single hand that went up. And they, at the end of it, they'll say there was 127 people in this service who made a commitment to Jesus. And that becomes the equivalent of them, well, becoming a Christian. But have they been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins? Have they said, you know what? I'm a sinner. I need Christ and him crucified for my sins. I am been stuck as a result of hearing God's law and know that I'm a guilty sinner and that I'm in, in danger of the fires of hell. And I've heard that Jesus Christ bled and died for my sins. They're not responding to that. They're responding to basically positively responding to make better decisions regarding their sex life. And this has become the equivalent of them becoming Christians. They've crossed the line of faith. And then what will happen is, is that Perry Noble will get onto Twitter and say, oh, New Spring peeps, I just love being a pastor. I just love being a pastor because this week at New Spring, oh, we, oh, in the five services that we held at New Spring, there were... Uh, 416 people who made a decision for Jesus. They haven't done anything of the sort. Number one, you can't do that. But um, that's a completely different conversation. But uh, no, all they've done is raise their hand saying that they you know, want to you know, have better finances, uh, to have better results uh, regarding their purpose, uh, you know, to have a better sex life. And none, none of that is, is them responding to the biblical gospel at all. They haven't been cut to the quick, Acts 2 style, um, you know, where they're, they're despairing and saying, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter's saying then, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. No, that's not what's happened. Oh, no. Ah, you're right. My sex life has just not been quite as, well, as appealing and, and you know, satisfactory as I hoped that it would be by this time in my life. And so, sure, I'll try Jesus' way of doing it if it'll increase my satisfaction rate. And so they raise their hand in church and da-da, but that's not them responding to the gospel. Anyway, Pastor Charlie continues, by the way, because this is a great point that he's making. He, uh, Pastor Charlie Rice says, while I'm writing... Uh, may I say something about Jim Wallace? He says that he came from a Plymouth Brethren background. I know a little about the Brethren since my maternal grandmother came from a Brethren background. Uh, they were the original dispensationalists and taught first that the world, practically speaking, belongs to Satan, joined with an eschatology that said Jesus would probably return within your lifetime. 
Thus, they tended to be to withdraw from society and to concentrate on making converts. The holy huddle mentality was very brethren. On the other hand, many brethren people, such as my grandmother's older sister, did a great deal of work in caring uh, for uh, in caring professions. Wallace is clearly reacting against bad doctrine. The brethren also had a very inadequate ecclesiology. The reaction is to what I call gospel maximalism. That is to say, you put everything into the gospel, failing to adequately distinguish between the gospel as the message and the implications of the gospel in life, leading, of course, to the loon on Facebook who says that no one has preached the gospel properly unless they include baptism, something that would condemn uh, the apostles as at a stroke. Uh, gospel maximalism is a way of confusing law and gospel as it puts things that belong under the law in gospel and cannot by its very nature distinguish law from gospel. It finally ends in making the gospel into a new law. Great points, Pastor Charmley, and uh, very lucid. Okay, moving along real quick before our first break. Um, as promised, uh, this is the latest, um, well, competitor in trying to dethrone um that awful, that just horrible um, a song that uh, made the rounds on the Internet a few years ago, uh, Sun Seeds, uh, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. This is uh, Michael P. Vigilante III's uh, Shout of the King's uh, Storm uh, track at the Crescent Shriner. Yeah, listen, you, you see if you can make heads or tails of this. All right, give God praise. Come on. Through the storms of this life, we will have much pain and dismay. By the way, if you want to see this, it'll be at the Museum of Idolatry before the end of the show. Through the storms of this This guy's dressed in something that looks like a Michael Jackson costume. Sometimes we feel we have nothing to gain. Through the storms of this life, our tears may fall like rain. Through the storms of this life, sometimes we feel the hand of the enemy trying to crush thee. You've really got to see the uh, the choreography that goes along with that. Apparently that's the police coming to arrest him for a relevancy fail violation. This is painful to watch. You have got to see this if you haven't seen it. Yeah. 
yeah, this is what happens when a tone-deaf Michael Jackson impersonator tries to make it look like Michael Jackson is leading us in a praise song. Whew. do you want to bet this guy believes he had a vision from God and a dream telling him that this was what he needed to do? Yeah, okay, I'm overcome by the song. Wow, that is just awful. That's just terrible. Things like this don't belong anywhere uh, within sight of anybody on the internet or in public. Uh, because people at the end of this will not be praising God. They will be cursing him for the crime that was just perpetrated against them. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, Majestic Mystery. Oh, Mysterious Majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this oh, at all. Majestic <laughs> mystery. I, I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Small mind. Ah! My appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. Oh, mysterious What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet. 
it on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read. Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. T too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude! Game over! Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't there anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. You hold it open! It's open to you, Majestic Mystery! Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. I can't believe the world's come to this. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. If you feel like you've had a God-sized dream, think again. It was probably just indigestion or self-delusion. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us financially, visit our website and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, the one that says Join Our Crew is all about signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95. That's it. Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, and of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And for our way of saying thank you, to those who support us during the month of December, we will be sending out a link 
for you to download uh, the Pirate Christian Radio edition of CFW Walther's The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. Fantastic books. Uh, book and it's our it's our way of saying thank you for supporting us. So if you would like to get a copy of that, uh, well, any size contribution will qualify you to get um, the proper distinction of law and gospel, which we'll be sending out hopefully before Christmas, if not shortly thereafter. So stay tuned. Okay, moving along. This is going to be the first time that we've um, done a, a an update from this gentleman. His name is Doctor Miravale, and uh, he is well. You can find his stuff at Fran at youtube.com Franciscan Friars, uh, youtube.com forward slash Franciscan Friars. But since I think we're going to be uh, featuring this guy in uh, more than once, I've come up with some update music for him. Here we go. In times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Yeah, Mother Mary comes to me. Okay, so um, the name of this video, by the way, is Lady of All Nations, and its subtitle is Christians Unite. And so I'm asking the question, can can Protestants uh, really um, syncretize and unite with the Roman Catholic Church? Um, apparently, James Robison and, you know, guys like Rick Warren and Glenn Beck all think we can, apparently. Well, let's listen to Dr. Miravelle explain, um, well, what he believes is information that he's received from the Lady of All Nations. Not sure who she is. I'm assuming it has something to do with Marian apparitions and things like that, but I'll let him explain. Here we go. Hello and welcome to MaryCast. This is Dr. Mark Miravalli. We're going through a series... Sorry, Miravalli. I pronounced that wrong. He's on the Church-Approved Apparitions under the title of the Lady of All Nations, where Our Lady comes to Amsterdam between 1945 and 1959. She gives a number of uh, incredible prophecies, uh, social, political, economic prophecies for our own day. And then also talk... Makes you wonder if uh, the Lady of All Nations is somehow related to Patricia King. It's about a spiritual remedy, essentially the praying of a prayer, the prayer of the Lady of All Nations, asking the Holy Spirit to descend upon the world into the hearts of all nations. She asks that the Holy Father would lead the nations in this prayer. The Holy Father would be the Pope. And ultimately, she asks the Holy Father to make a solemn papal definition of her role as co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate. Co-redemptrix? Really? Yeah. So your your salvation was, you know, Mary who helped participate in that. She was co-redemptrix. I want to read a couple of the messages. So in this series, we've been focusing on exactly what Our Lady is saying, and I want you to hear it from her. Yeah, please. I mean, can't wait. Uh, Does she have uh, you know gold dust and uh, glory cloud uh, accompanying her when she gives these messages? Uh, the, the power, the importance, the, the articulation of her role as co-redemptrix, mediatrix advocate. Why mediatrix. Weird. I mean, do you... Ever in the Bible, do you hear anything about Mary being a 
co-redemptrix, mediatrix, or anything like that. Uh, no, nowhere in Scripture does. In fact, in the early church fathers, none of this theology exists either. Weird. Where did this come from? Why the prayer is so important and why it all ultimately leads up to this call for a fifth dogma, which he calls a dogma uh, as a keystone of Marian history. I'm going to read from the September 20th, 1951 message, and I'm going to start a little uh, earlier in leading up to the call of the prayer because it gives context. And what I mean by that is, it's not simply a prayer for general spiritual benefit, certainly is that, but it's so much more. Mm-hmm. It's a prayer to try, try to stave off natural and economic disasters. So you got a prayer that can stave off natural and economic disasters. Wow, sign me up. And as it sounds like magic. We're seeing this in the 21st century, and we're seeing this in our own day so significantly. Hopefully, it'll be an impetus for us to respond to what Our Lady's calling. She says, again, she says, weird. It, hmm. I mean, she kind of takes a backseat role after the early stories in the uh, Gospels, and it all becomes about Jesus. How did, she be, how did she get back into the front seat to where we don't even have to focus on Christ, that we can just listen to Mary? Weird. On September 20th, 1951, Christians all over the world should unite. Are the Christians really conscious of what the others are doing? So Mary said this in 1951. And of the sacrifices they make for their ideals. The church must be ready to meet dangers. Christians shall and must enter into themselves. Let them consider what part they are to play in this world. Once again, I warn Rome and I tell the Holy Father, you are the fighter of this time. See to it that all your subjects prove to be great-hearted and open-minded in their work and in their judgments. This alone can save the world and be one for the faith. Hmm. Sounds like a different salvation of the world than the one that Jesus won on the cross. Now at once I see snowflakes. This is the visionary Edith Perdomen describing. Now at once I see snowflakes whirling around the lady, Mm -hmm. and these fall upon the globe. The lady then says, Child, why is this prayer not being spread abroad? What are they waiting for? I have taught it to you so that it might be circulated among the people. Let everyone say this short and simple prayer every day. Not the Lord's Prayer, but this new Marian prayer that came to us in 1951. This prayer is purposely kept short and simple. So that well, that's great. That every person may manage to say it. Even in this modern and speed-crazy world, It has been given so that the coming of the spirit of truth may be implored for the world. Yeah, um, since this contradicts the truth of Scripture, hard to believe that this um, prayer that supposedly came from Mary herself in 1951 uh, through some kind of Roman Catholic medium, um, it's it's really going to invoke the spirit of truth. I get the feeling this is going to be invoking the other team in the name of the spirit of truth. Now the lady looks about her and then at the world. Then I see black patches appear here and there. The lady says to me, these are the economic and material disasters that will strike the world. Uh huh. This sounds a lot like uh, something that would be broadcast on the extreme prophetic uh, Patricia King gang website. I have said disasters will come. Disasters of nature. Now I say to you, all these black patches you see there are disasters yet to come. Gasp. And now I do not only speak of catastrophes of nature. 
Once again, I call on all Christian peoples when I say, it is high time, band yourselves together, and you, child, will hand it on. You will let the world know that it is the Lady of all nations who is sending you. Mm. So apparently Mary is in, is in cahoots on this thing, and uh, she's working behind the scenes to help unite us all back with Roman Catholicism. You will tell the theologians to see their battle for the Marian dogma through to the finish. I will help them. The Lady of all nations will reach out to the whole earth. Now, my friends, this is a powerful prayer. Uh, she starts, starts about uh, discussing how, how Christians are called to unite. Look at world. What are we supposed to unite behind, by the way? Because all this stuff that you're saying came from the Virgin Mary um, is officially creeping me out because, uh, yeah, I can think of about uh, two dozen passages of Scripture that contradict that, that last thing. The individuals set on worldly goals. Ironically, they're very united, and most ironically, they make great sacrifices for principles and movements which are very anti-Christ, anti-church. If they could be doing this for worldly and secular goals, what about us? What about Christians uniting for the goals of heaven? And that- um, well, um, since you've said that the uh, the establishment of this Marian doctrine as co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate is part of your agenda, um, I can't unite with you because that flat out is not what the Bible teaches. It's a foreign doctrine, and it obscures the gospel of the, the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. There was no co-redeemer when it came to our salvation. Jesus' shed blood on the cross sank, you know, basically secured that all for us without any of Mary's sufferings being put into the mix at all. None. So I, how can I unite with you? That's what Our Lady is saying here. Christians have to unite and, and, and form a spiritual unity in the face of such uh, offsetting and grave attacks from humanity and from, from the sect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I shouldn't see this false doctrine as a grave attack from you know the devil. I should just put away our doctrinal differences and unite with you. You know, yeah, I won't be joining you at any time soon for any kind of work. Peter dimensions of humanity. Uh, she speaks of the Holy Father as being the fighter. In these messages, I should also say that she saw a German bishop in full pontificals. She said he will be older, uh, but he is also uh, this dimension of a fighter, uh, also a reference of his role. So even Pope Benedict was predicted by the Lady of All Nations back in the 1950s. Now, she goes on to say, uh, she gives this image of snowflakes, and the snowflakes are whirling around the lady, and they fall upon the globe, and she says, essentially, child, why is this prayer not be, being spread abroad? And sadly, she could be saying the same thing right now. Uh, why are not more Catholics and Christians praying this prayer for a new descent of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, you know, Mark, I think you need to... Uh... <laughs> You really need to go to extremeprophetic.com and you know hook up with the folks over there, uh, with you know under Patricia King's guidance from the Glory School. You guys sound like you are two birds in a feather. Yeah, I like I said, 
won't be uh, uniting anytime soon with these folks. Because, and then I just ask a question. You know, uh, you know, you got James Robison, uh, Robison, you know, claiming that we need to, you know, unite with the uh, Roman Catholics, and you know, then you got Glenn Beck wanting to unite with the uh, Roman Catholics, and Rick Warren wanting to do the same thing. And I'm just asking the question, how, again, are we supposed to do that? Because there's, like, no theological common ground that we can come to because their false doctrine undermines, does away with, obscures, gets rid of the gospel. Hmm. Weird. Birds of a feather, I guess. (laughs) Moving along. My apologies. This song will be stuck in your head for the next week. That's right, we're doing a uh, Mark Batterson uh, Circle Maker update. Circle in the sand, that's right. Okay, so uh, Mark Batterson at the uh, thecirclemaker.com has uh, posted the video of a recent conference that he hosted and was teaching some of the principles regarding cir- the Circle Maker. And, uh, well, let's just say that it's a plethora of, uh, well, it's a wellspring of bad doctrine and theology. But uh, we're not going to get to all of it today, but I thought I would play some relevant pieces from it just to kind of help you get your head around, pun intended, um, the circle maker stuff that he's teaching and what it's all about. So without any further ado, here's Mark Batterson talking about the the need to having a God-sized dream, because that's really what's at the heart of the circle maker. And how you get said God-sized dream. Uh, Here's Mark Batterson. Number two, uh, one God idea is greater than a thousand good ideas. Here's the way I'd say it. I'd rather have one God idea than a thousand good ideas. Now, you can go to a conference and you get lots of good ideas, right? But And good ideas are good. But God ideas change the course of it. Well, how do you get a God idea? Because I like the sounds of that. Well, notice he was about to say that God ideas change the course of history. How do you get one? You get in the presence of God. So all you got to do is get into the presence of God. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't God omnipresent? Um, Can you name a place where you can go where you are outside of the presence of God? What does this language even mean? Really? Yeah. Get in God's presence. You need a dream? Oh. Get in the presence of God. So if you're in need of a dream, just get into the presence of God. You can Well, forget the fact that you can't ever leave it, but okay. And God will begin to conceive dreams and visions in you. And then you can... Really? <laughs> 
So you'll, you'll start to conceive dreams and visions. Pregnancy talk, weird. And have the confidence that they were conceived in the context of prayer. Now, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in dreams that are conceived any other way. Um, oh, you need healing? Get in the presence of God. You need to discern the will of God? Well, get in the presence of God. I can't tell you what it is, but maybe you want to try fasting and prayer as a way of, of making sure that you just get in the presence of God. Uh, and then, Can you think of any passages that say, hey, are you in need of a big God-sized dream? Just get into the presence of God and whammo blammo, you'll get pregnant and conceive a God-sized dream with inside of you. Can you think of any passages that say that? Because like nothing's coming to my mind. And, and then Exodus 33 just started beating me up, and I'm reading it the other day, and I'm like, I don't always like cry when I read the word, but I'm reading it, and I'm like, I can barely hold myself together because there's this little Exodus 33, okay, little piece where Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us out from here. We need to be a people of God's presence and it's in god's whoa whoa slow down there tex mark here is like omitting some like really important data here by the way exodus 33 isn't the story of how you can get into god's presence so that you can have a dream gestate inside of you after it's been conceived like nothing of the sort um the context is that's going on in this passage happens to be after that well that incident um the, you remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he was gone for a long period of time? Yeah, let me read to you the relevant passage so you get what's going on here. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses fellow, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings and the gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. We all know how that went down, right? Hopefully, I don't have to read the rest of the story. But you get you get what's going on there is is they worshipped a an idol. God commanded them not to do that because this is Exodus thirty two, not Exodus twenty. They already know that the Ten Commandments say you shall have no other gods before me. But they got kind of clever. Uh, they this god that they made this golden calf they they named it the Lord. So you know they were worshiping the one true God through this golden calf apparently. So anyway, we all know how that went. It didn't go very well for the people of Israel. And so when we come into Exodus chapter 33, that's the backdrop for the story. In Exodus chapter 33, then, it begins with God at this point, you know, still, uh, let's just say, sore about what happened with the whole golden calf incident. And so here's what it says. Chapter 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land to which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. 
So God's basically saying, listen, I'll, I'll give you an angel, but my presence is gone. Now, what presence is it talking about? I mean, here they had a special, a special visible sign of God's presence, okay? The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. I mean, you know, God's smoking presence on the top of Mount Sinai. God said, that's it. You're not going to see this. I'm out of here. I'll send an angel, but, you know, that we're done. That's what's being talked about here. So in verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So take off your ornaments, that they may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Okay, so verse 12, by the way, you know, we'll kind of fast-forward a little bit here. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he called, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's the context of this. So here, Mark Batterson is making reference to Exodus chapter 33, but all of the relevant, important information regarding what is meant by the presence of God isn't even discussed. And apparently now this can just get translated by ripping it out of context into, hey, you need a dream? Don't worry, God's got a big dream for you. All you got to do is get into the presence of God and we can weep over you know, Moses' prayer. Oh, let, us not ha- you know, let not your presence depart from us. This doesn't make any biblical sense. We continue. Presence that then those God ideas come. And so it starts right there. Hang on. I got to just back this up and listen. Presence and it's in God's presence that then those God ideas come. Are there examples in the book of Exodus of the uh, children of Israel having all these incredible God ideas that just popped into their head that they were impregnated with? Uh, because they were in the presence of God. No. And so it starts right there. Let me go back a couple of years, because I, I just wonder if this idea might not be critical to what God wants to accomplish today. You know, do you, how, how many of you have a theme going into next year that you already kind of know what that is? Let, let me see your hands. And, and Yeah, my theme for 2012 is the same as 2011's. Um, comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. That's my theme. And then how many of you are trying to kind of discern that you're trying to figure that out? And then, yeah, no, I no, I've already figured it out. And I didn't even have to go into the presence of God to have be impregnated with that dream. Can we just be on it? Like how many of you've never thought about that? Um, now how many think it's a terrible idea? You know, um, you have to be real careful and, and, oh man. Okay, if it rhymes with the year, it might not be God. (laughs) Come on. Might be. I'm against alliterated sermons. I'm sorry. Not not entirely. It's okay if you preach alliterated sermons for a memory mechanism. That's fine. But let me share this because this is this idea of getting this one God idea. And I want you to see how this has played out at National Community Church and why this has been so critical to us. Last year, 
we were praying, God, what is it this year that you want to do? And here's what the Lord said. Um, so they got into the presence of God, and God just started you know, speaking directly to them, apparently audibly. You need to know me. You need to know my character. You don't know me well enough. You're trying to solve your own problems. You're trying to do this and that and the other thing. And I am the solution. I, I love A.W. Tozer. This is one of my all-time favorites. He said, a, a low view of God is the cause of 100 lesser evils. And a high view of God is a solution to 10,000 temporal problems. How good is that? That's good stuff right there. And so I just felt like God said, I want to reveal my character to you. Mm, he wants to reveal that. Hasn't he already revealed that in the Bible? And so we didn't do a whole lot of felt need sermon. Okay, well, that's great and all. So anyway, he goes on to explain in this lecture, you know, how they didn't do a lot of felt need sermons. And then they did, they they created a worship album based upon the revealed attributes of God. And you know, now they've, that's, that's a brand new album that you can buy on iTunes. But what I thought most interesting is is that after he gave a sample of what this new worship music sounds like that came about as a result of this God dream that they received directly from God, who was speaking to him apparently audibly or some kind of way uh, that they can understand full-on sentences, um, that uh, he then gave a sample of one of these um, songs that they received as a result of this God dream. All, this is all part and parcel of the circle maker philosophy, by the way. Then Batterson goes on to say this. In 1 Corinthians 10, 5, it says, take captive every thought. What does that mean? Well, let's take a look. Um, 1 Corinthians, they say 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Well, let's take a look at it. It's actually 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. But let's, let's look at it in context. I mean, uh, here again the question. Uh, listen to what he says. Let's take a listen. In 1 Corinthians 10, 5, it says... It's actually 2 Corinthians. Take captive every thought. What does that mean? Okay, good question. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says take captive every thought. Well, let's take a look. See if we can figure out what it means looking at the context. Paul writes, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away... I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I think the passage speaks for itself. It's pretty clear. So when it talks about taking thoughts captive, it's taking arguments and every lofty thought that raises itself against the knowledge of God. It says it right there in the text, right there in the verse, in context. But watch what he does, what Mark Batterson does with this verse in, teach, in his recently concluded Circle Maker um, one-day seminar that, uh, that is all part of the teaching of the book. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 10.5, it says, take captive every thought. What does that mean? 
I think almost every time I've heard that preach, it means take captive sinful thoughts and keep them out of your mind. I would agree that that's part and parcel of what's being discussed. They're also heresy and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So any any false doctrine would count here as to what thoughts need to be taken captive. Watch what he does. Do you know what? There's a flip side to that. I think it also means that we take captive those thoughts that are conceived in us by the Holy Spirit. I call them God ideas. And There's a flip side to that. Let's hear that again. There's a flip side to that. I think it also means that we take captive those thoughts that are conceived in us by the Holy Spirit. I call them God ideas, and so the good news today... I so apparently 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, teaches us to seize the God-sized dreams placed in our hearts by God the Holy Spirit. Wow. Um, where did he go to seminary? Did, I mean, did he take a basic hermeneutics class? Why is it that this is the premier book being put out by Zondervan? And, you know, where the executive vice president of, uh, of Zondervan is out there tweeting quotes from this book. Mark Batterson doesn't know how to handle God's word. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 doesn't say anything about seizing God-sized dreams that God has placed on your heart. It's not on the flip side. It's not on the reverse side. It's not on the on the B track. It's not on the you know the equilateral side of the triangle. It ain't anywhere. That's not a valid inference or teaching from the text. And he just threw it out there. So the two verses we got in this segment of his lecture regarding the circle maker completely mangling God's word. How many strikes does somebody need to get before you say, well, yeah, they're they're not rightly handling God's word and and we shouldn't be buying, purchasing, or encouraging anybody to be purchasing, listening to, or you know, putting themselves under the teaching of this man because he doesn't shoot straight when it comes to God's word. Of course not. He shoots in circles. So. <clears throat> All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, listening to an epistle sermon, uh, an epistle written by Rob Bell to the folks at Mars Hill Bible Church. Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Whew, man, that's bad. All right, we'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. We're going to do a little comparative work between this epistle preached by Rob Bell and the farewell epistle delivered by the Apostle Paul to the uh, churches in Ephesus. I'll give you a biblical address here in a minute. Let's uh, first cue up our Sermon Review music and uh, talk about what we're going to talk about here. Hang on. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Mars Hill Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Rob Bell presiding. The name of the sermon, Dear Mars Hill. Think of this sermon as a postmodern epistle. If uh, postmodernity were true, and it isn't, and Rob Bell were a sound teacher of what God really intended to be taught, and he isn't, then this is what an epistle would sound like coming from a postmodern apostle. And that would be Rob Bell. Pay close attention to his attack on sound words, his exaltation of experience. Um, <laughs> it, this is crazy. And what we'll do in the middle of the sermon review, we'll throw in uh, the Apostle Paul's farewell address to the church in Ephesus, just by way of you know comparison. See how the two line up. See if uh, Rob Bell sounds anything like the Apostle Paul, or if he sounds like one of the wolves that the Apostle Paul warns us about in his farewell address to the church in Ephesus. Anyway, so without any further ado, let me uh, uh, kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Rob Bell and his letter, epistle, um, Dear Mars Hill. Dear Mars Hill, to all the brothers and sisters of this church, to those who have been here from the beginning who remember the old building, who braved that one ten-foot-wide hallway clogged shoulder to shoulder. Honey, why is Timmy acting so loopy? Well, he's been with 47 other third graders in an oxygen-deprived broom closet learning how to change the world. <laughs> to those who hiked through the snow and slush and mud that first day to sit on the... I want to point something out here. This is a carefully crafted letter. There are no throwaway lines. They've been in an oxygen-deprived room learning how to change the world. That's the false gospel that's being preached here, by the way. You just heard it mentioned in passing. But that's really the gospel that um, Rob Bell preaches. And it's the same gospel preached by many, 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 many seeker-driven pastors. 
Rob Bell just being one of the more famous of them uh, among the postmodern stripe. We continue. On the floor, who idled in long traffic jams to listen to sermons from the book of Leviticus on blood and guts and fire. And then, to those of you who showed up for the first time last week, to those who have complained for 10 years that there's no sign out front, and you have heard me respond time and time again, yes, but you found it. To those who were baptized in that nearby lake in those early days, especially those of you who were baptized that one Sunday when we didn't know that all of those hundreds of fish had died earlier that week <laughs> and washed up on shore. And so before you got baptized, you watched in horror as your fellow church members wearing waders collected the dead rotting fish in black trash bags and cleared out enough space for you to wade in and celebrate your rebirth. <laughs> and then to those of you who were baptized in this room, in an old former mall, standing there soaking wet, surrounded by friends and family, cheered on by your tribe, not sure how to put it in words, but absolutely convinced that you had in some way tasted heaven on earth. To the young and to the old, to the hunters in your trucks who can't grill it if you don't kill it, <laughs> and to the vegetarians in your Priuses wearing your hemp underwear. To those on the right and those on the left, and those of you who never removed your Ron Paul bumper sticker from the last election, <laughs> to the Dutch. Okay, want to point out the fact here. Notice he's making a point of acknowledging right and left, liberal, conservative, because postmodernity is a third way that's different than right or left. It's neither right nor left. All, this is a carefully crafted postmodern message. Epistle, if you would. And to the not much. <laughs> to Lions fans and to infidels. <laughs> to all of you, wherever and however you find yourself, whatever size, shape, color, perspective, history, and background you bring to this gathering, grace and peace to all of you on this day. Kristen and I were out to dinner with some friends in October for one last meal before we moved. They had been beloved friends of ours for 10 years. And at the end of the meal, one of them took out several folded pieces of paper as she told us that she had written us a letter, which she then read. In the letter, she took us back through our 10 years together, remembering events and people and places and moments we shared, several of which I had forgotten about. Many times she would pause when she read about a particular experience we had all shared together. And we would look around the table at each other as we found ourselves visiting that day long past. When she was done, there was not a dry eye at the table. It was a sacred moment, a glimpse of the eternal in the now. So as I've been thinking about my sermon here today, I found myself returning again and again to the power of a good letter. Someone may text you or ping you or email you or direct message you or contact you on Facebook, but none of those particular mediums of communication can begin to compare to a letter in which the person has labored over every word, going back over it again and again and again, crafting the phrases and searching for just the right word and turn of phrase to capture precisely what you want to say. Technology has given us a wide array of methods to communicate, and because of this variety, it's important to remember 
that there is a distinction to be made between the diversity of forms of communication and then depth, significance, and soul. So, I've written you a letter. I'll start with some, some thanks, then a lesson you've taught me, then some warnings, and then a confession. First, then, some thanks. There is a pattern to the creative process. You start with an idea, a hunch, an image, a vision, a picture of the thing you want to create. It may be a business or a painting or a mission or a cause or a new way to empower people to help themselves or a basic need that is unmet or a song or a new way to landscape your backyard or a product or a project for school or a piece of furniture or a new color for the walls of that downstairs bathroom because you just can't stand that awful shade of pale mustard that for some unfathomable reason the previous owner thought looked good. And so you set out to make it, create it, change it, fashion it, form it, organize it, arrange it. And it takes something out of you. You have to sweat, exert, and expend yourself. You have to gather or purchase or harvest the materials. You make a plan, you design it, engineer it, make sketches, have meetings, do research. You study how others have done similar things. And then you get at it. As you work away, what was once just an idea, an abstraction in your mind, begins to become a reality. Whether it's wood or nails or words or paint or the new flow of resources in a new direction, at some point, it begins to take shape. What once existed only in your mind begins to exist in actual time and space. You can see it, taste it, hold it, admire it. And because it cost something, because it only exists as a result of your sweat and blood, you have a visceral attachment to it. It came out of you. And when it's completed, you may be exhausted, spent, and ready for a rest, but you are exhilarated. And so it's late Sunday night, and you've been painting all weekend, and you're sitting there on the floor in the hallway outside that downstairs bathroom. This is, he's describing the vision, receiving and vision casting process, by the way. Um, and uh, with the seeker-driven pastor, they believe that the vision came directly from God. Uh, the dream, if you would, uh, the creative process. So here, he's not beginning in God's word for his sermon. He's beginning with laying out the vision, receiving vision casting process. Weird. And you're exhausted, and it took way longer than you expected, because house projects always do. And you smell, and you need to shower, and to be honest, you have a bit of a buzz from all those fumes. But you are the king and queen of your empire because those walls are no longer that putrid shade of pale mustard. They're magenta. <laughs> or cranberry. Or seafoam green. You have taken part in the mystery at the heart of creation. We are here, somehow. Our existence itself continues to be a profound mystery. Being itself raises more questions than it answers. This mystery takes us deep into the heart of God. When we create, we are participating in that mystery in a real and tangible way. This truth about the creative process brings me to you because you were once an idea. Okay, now I'm going to pause there for a second. This is a major tenet of postmodern philosophy and theology. That the creative process is somehow a participation in the divine nature in a very mysterious way. Granted, we wouldn't be able to do anything creative if God had not given us the ability to do so. 
But this, again, this is a postmodern epistle. And uh, so I just want to highlight the one of the major doctrines of postmodernity. The mystery of the creative process is somehow a mystical union, a unia mystica with uh, the divine nature. Okay, that's this is this is, this hits all the major themes of postmodernity. It's very interesting. Let's continue. This church, this place, this community was once simply a hunch, a dream, a vision, a picture in the mind of a new kind of church for the new world we find ourselves in. A church that was fearless in confronting the injustices and systems of oppression that lurk around every corner, and at the very same time, deeply committed to the personal, intimate experience of following Jesus. Not the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The, some, the experience of a relationship with Jesus. So social justice and some kind of an experience of a relationship. Have you heard anything about Christ and him crucified for our sins? The cross? I mean, hearing anything like that? Eventually he'll touch on it, kind of, but watch what he does with it. But let's continue. Of experiencing the joy and peace that is ours. A church that found the stale, old categories of liberal and conservative boring and irrelevant because we'd experienced resurrection. Boy, I got to replay that one again. Hang on a second. Found the stale, old categories of liberal and conservative boring and irrelevant because we'd experienced resurrection. Which so the stale, old categories of liberal and conservative is boring. Why? Because they'd experienced resurrection. Really, they had? Jesus had returned and raised the dead on you know and and made them just like him uh-huh yeah you, you, the reason uh, you can hear the um skepticism in my voice is cuz we're not called to quote experience resurrection and by the way stale old categories of liberal and conservative let me give you a different uh, set of categories that does mirror this okay the stale old categories of right and wrong of good and evil we've transcended all of those via an experience of resurrection it doesn't matter whether something is true or false propositionally we've had a feeling we've had a burning in our bosom we've had the experience of resurrection that transcends all propositions regarding right and wrong, good and evil, and things like that. That's what he's saying. And you're going, what is this? Yeah, what is this is right. Um, boy, uh, <laughs> wow. It includes and affirms anything and everything that brings liberating new life wherever it's found, irrespective of whatever labels and categories it's been given, because of the abiding conviction that the tomb is, after all, empty. The abiding, you know, I'm going to back this up so we can hear this in context. I, I want you to hear this whole statement as he rattles it off the way he intended it. Hang on. It is ours. 
a church that found the stale old categories of liberal and conservative boring and irrelevant because we'd experienced resurrection, which includes and affirms anything and everything that brings liberating new life wherever it's found, irrespective of whatever labels and categories it's been given because of the... What does that sentence even mean? That affirms new life wherever it's found? What does that mean? I mean, the the reality is, is that the weeds in my garden every spring pop up and experience new life. And I, I want them dead because they're weeds. What does it mean that, you know, because, because of the abiding conviction that the tomb was empty, we embrace new life wherever it is? Or what? I mean, what is the cash value of the sentence? And apparently it's locked up in some kind of postmodern experience. The abiding conviction that the tomb is, after all, empty. A church. A church where the main thing was actually the main thing. A church that understood that there is a simplicity on the other side of complexity, aware of the various interpretations and perspectives and systems of thinking and analyzing, and yet with a clear, resolute sense that Jesus is doing something in the world, bringing water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, peace to the restless, presence to the lonely, and we are... What about forgiveness of sins to the sinner? So Jesus is out there doing something in the world, which includes... You know, company for the lonely, water for the thirsty, and stuff like that. Hmm. Sounds like a liberal social gospel. Jesus is busy doing anything other than, well, forgiving sinners of their sins. Weird. ...are invited to join his movement. That Jesus is ultimately not a proposition you intellectually assent to, but a person you say yes to church that understood that matters then is our yes with whatever we have and whatever we don't have with whoever and however we are and whoever and however we aren't wherever we come from what matters is our yes you my friends through you I have experienced the mysterious joy of creation I will never be able to fully adequately explain what it has been like to have imagined you, conceived of you, this church, and then have you exist. From those earliest discussions Kristen and I would have in our early 20s, eating lunch at the Taco Bell on Colorado Boulevard in Los Angeles, imagining what a church could be to this very moment, you have brought me the joy of creation. Thank you. Okay, now I gotta pause here for a second. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter twenty. Acts chapter twenty. I, by way of comparison, what I'd like to do here is you know, let's do a little comparative work because the Apostle Paul, um, when he was heading towards Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be arrested there, you know, God the Holy Spirit had warned them that you know trouble was ahead. Okay, but he went ahead with it anyway okay acts chapter 20 so paul on his way on his sea voyage back to jerusalem stops at ephesus and the uh, elders from the church there came to him and he gave them his final parting words okay i want you to compare this 
Listen carefully to Paul's final address to the church at Ephesus as opposed to this thing that we're hearing from Rob Bell. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 20, I'll start at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, Paul said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Weird that this message is missing from Rob Bell's final address, but not really. If you've followed Rob Bell's teaching, then you know he's not a Christian teacher. We continue. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when they had said, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Notice. Paul wasn't speaking in any postmodern way. He says, now I came to you wanting to do a new kind of thing among you in this new age. You know, we've left the Bronze Age. Bronze Age. We're now in the Age of Iron. And, uh, you know, we're in the age. We've gone from kingdoms to empires. And so I've come up with a new way to do church, to be relevant among you, to create a new tribe, if you would, uh, that's neither liberal or conservative, that's not hung up on propositions regarding Jesus or anything like that, but 
calling you in to, to experience uh, what God is doing in a new way and uh, for you to uh, join me as we make the world a better place. Not even close. Even in Paul's farewell address to the church in Ephesus, he made clear reference to the grace of God and that we are forgiven and purchased by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Are we hearing that from Rob Bell here? This is really foreign stuff that we're hearing from Rob Bell. This is, this is his farewell address to Mars Hill Bible Church. And yet I am just not hearing anything that even remotely sounds like a Christian message. Making a difference in the world? Experiencing Jesus helping him to give water to thirsty people and participating with whatever it is he's doing here on earth? I, I don't understand this uh, language. At least it's not biblical. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then, a second thanks. In September, when you learned that I believe in you, for many of you, it was like a bomb going off. You didn't expect it. You weren't looking for it. You got an email on a Thursday and on the following Sunday, you heard it directly from me. I have, since then, had the chance to personally interact with a large number of you, and you have been, across the board, extraordinarily consistent in your responses, which have been two. One, grief, and two, support. This is significant and meaningful for a number of reasons. First, any change, even if it's good change, is always a form of loss, and loss must be grieved. That's the only way it works. Stuff it, deny it, repress it, suppress it, and it will come back to haunt you. It will lurk in the shadows until it resurfaces later. Grief, then, is a sign of health. It demonstrates an awareness of your interiors, your heart, and your desire to face and embrace what's actually going on inside of you. And then secondly, you have been supportive. At times, shockingly so, at least from my perspective. Some of you only had that Thursday email, and still, when you saw me with no details, you made it very clear that whatever we would be up to next, you were cheering us on. This is significant as well for a number of reasons, namely, your belief that God is big and any movement to share this love of God with more people is movement in a life-giving direction and this same big loving God is fully capable of taking care of all of us whether we are together. God is big. Really? How big is he? Is he bigger than a coffee mug? Uh, bigger than a Dalmatian? Uh, a Labrador retriever? Is he bigger than a bus? How big is he? Notice here, we're talking about a big God who's loving. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Those believing in his name have eternal life. Those not believing remain under the wrath of God, the apostle John tells us in John chapter 3. I, I, I don't, I mean, sh I'm sure God's big, okay? Yeah, I'm sure he's huge, but um, I'm not sure what that, what bigness has to do with anything pertaining to the gospel because we're, we're called to proclaim 
repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Christ and him crucified and raised again on the third day for our justification. You get, you get what I'm saying here? Or whether we are apart. A story. A story to tell you why this means what it does to me. Several years ago, there was a well-known pastor who openly, publicly had a number of issues that he was against, both morally and spiritually and politically. He was loud and outspoken about these particular issues. It turns out that one of the issues he was most vocally opposed to was something that he himself had struggled with for a number of years. Upon this being revealed publicly, his church released him from his leadership position. You, you mean he was caught committing adultery? <clears throat> uh-huh. Shortly after this, a friend of mine happened to meet him while they were visiting the same city, and when they began conversing, this pastor in exile expressed a great deal of stored-up venom for his former church that he had started, venting about how they had shot their wounded and they hadn't extended him grace and love and all that. He was shocked. They had treated him like they had. Here's what I find so startling. He was complaining about how they dealt with him, but he's the one who shaped and taught and molded them. You mean he preached only the law and not the gospel? And then when he was caught committing adultery, he wasn't shown grace because he never once showed grace or preached the cross and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Hmm, okay. He merely found himself on the receiving end of how he trained them to be. He created and crafted the system to behave a particular way, and then it behaved in that particular way. It's easy to form a circle and pick up stones, taking turns quoting Bible verses the whole time, ready to unleash those stones on the one who's guilty. It's another thing to be the person standing in the middle of that circle, desperate for one person, just one, to say, is any of you without sin? Those who have ears, let them hear. So that's the question you have as a leader. Yeah, keep in mind, um, the story itself is questioned as to whether or not it really belongs in the biblical text. Second, um, the uh, the woman, let's just say the story is historical, that it really does reflect a real happening that Jesus really did. Um, it wasn't that the other people didn't have any sins. It's that she was forgiven by her Savior who would very shortly after that, bleed and die for her sins on the cross. You carry around with you as a pastor, as a teacher, the question that you live with day in and day out, are they getting it? I have tried to teach you about a big God who holds all things, including us, in an unconditional loving embrace. I have tried to teach and... Really, um, by the way, God's loving embrace of sinful humanity is not unconditional. It's conditioned upon the forgiveness of our sins. I want to make that clear. It's conditioned upon us being covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, having our white robes made white by dipping them in the blood of the Lamb, to use the uh, language from the book of Revelation. Yeah, it, God is not some big sloppy old grandpa in the sky who just wants to give us a big warm hug um you know his embrace of us came at a great price and it's not unconditional it's conditioned upon that model for you an unswerving hope and trust that change and risk and leaps of faith 
are normal and at times absolutely necessary for our growth and the continued expansion of our hearts. So when in this change, this loss, this transition, this departure, you have responded time and time again with largeness of spirit and bigness of heart, with confidence that the God who got you this far is fully capable of taking you the rest of the way, deeply attuned to your own emotions and responses, and at the very same time convinced that everybody will be just fine because what could possibly separate us from the love we've tasted and experienced, the love of Christ. Yeah, so everybody's going to be just fine. Yeah, don't need to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. No, 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 no. Everyone's going to be just fine in the, the big, sloppy, kissy embrace of this ginormous love God that holds and sustains us all. That is so moving and reassuring to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, two words of thanks. Now, on to a lesson you taught me. For many people, the simple dualisms of right and wrong and good and bad are the sole prism, the lens. The simple dualisms of right and wrong, of good and bad. This, this is a primer in post-modernity, got to tell you. Wow, the simple dualisms of right and wrong, good and bad. Uh-huh, of true doctrine and false doctrine. Yeah, they've moved beyond this, those simple dualisms to a much deeper, more profound faith, I'm sure. ...through which they look for God in the world. So if things go well, then God is good, is how the thinking goes. And if things don't go well, all kinds of questions arise about God and hope and faith, and was it all just a grand illusion in the first place? The life we've found together, however is far more subtle, nuanced, and complex than those simple dualisms. And I've seen you discover this. Yeah, yeah, it's simple dualisms, right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error, you know. They've discovered a, a much more complex and more highly nuanced theology. This is post-modernity. This deep well of insight as it has shaped you in profound ways. I've seen you get cancer. I've seen you struggle with infertility. I've seen you at the funeral of people you love. I've seen you get, get let go from your jobs. I've seen you lose tens of thousands of dollars and get sued. I've seen you find out that your kid is using drugs. And at the same time, I've watched you find God in the mess, in the tension, in the chaos. I've seen you find peace and joy and calm and rest in situations in which everybody else is convinced that peace and joy and calm and rest, much like Elvis, have left the building. <laughs> There's an ancient midrash about Jacob who wrestles with the angel. They say that he walks with a limp afterwards, but it's because he's experienced God. I've watched many of you walk with a limp. It's a deeper wisdom you have. Notice the allegorical use of scripture, a narcissistic form of eisegesis. See, look, Israel wrestled with God. Ah, so now I've seen many of you walking with a limp, too. This, see, the scriptures are all about you. 
you've experienced the same thing. Attained a higher level. By the way, Israel literally, for real, wrestled with Jesus, the angel of the Lord. That's how he, This was a pre-incarnate Jesus. Israel actually had a real wrestling match with him uh, as he's getting ready to meet his brother Esau after, you know, the the whole many years after the whole thing went down where he stole his birthright. This is going to be the first time he's going to meet with Esau. And on the eve of that event, he actually physically wrestles all night with the angel of the Lord. This is not an allegorical thing. This is a real thing. So, you know, just unbelievable how you just take the scripture, empty out its historical meaning, and the fact that this really did happen, and allegorize it and make it about you. It's just that, well, let's put it this way. Rob Bell is far more gifted at narcissistic eisegesis than most guys. He does a better job of disguising it. Level of consciousness, a more refined and ultimately more enduring way of seeing that you have acquired. It's a spirituality that doesn't need quick and easy answers, that shuns the trite and cliche. A, a deep spirituality, yes, that gets rid of those easy answers, you know, like creeds and things like that. It understands that Christ is somewhere here in this mess. Christ is somewhere in the mess. We don't know where he is, but he's... Just look at the mess. I'm sure he's in there somewhere. And no matter how dark our foreboding it gets, we will at some point see him. Friday will eventually give way to Sunday. Yeah, we'll just allegorize uh, the Jesus' death on Good Friday and his res resurrection from the grave on Easter Sunday, literally. And now we'll make this about your life. We'll make a, a sentimental theology out of this your dark fridays will eventually give way to sunday unless of course you're about to die and then your friday just gets really dark and then you die and while there are blood and tears and heartache and at times we're barely holding on by our fingernails or our chinny chin chin to quote the hebrew when we do stumble into the daylight when we do find a little respite a sliver of shalom when we eventually do meet the resurrected christ we know that it will be real and it will matter and it will be true and it will be sad. It will satisfy. I've seen you lament. And yeah, see, when you meet the resurrected Christ, you're going to go, yeah, you know, I had the same Friday, Sunday experiences he did. Boy, we have a lot in common. Laugh. I've seen you cry and celebrate. I've seen you weep and wail. And then I've watched you whoop it up. I have seen you pull your hair out from pain and frustration and chemotherapy and then I've also seen you dye it bright colors because somebody somewhere is throwing a party you have taught me not to fear the full spectrum of human experience but to celebrate it to embrace it to wallow in it and to soar with it Christians are often eager to point out that Jesus said he was the Son of God, and so it's seen as the wedge issue, the crux of the faith, the divisive point you have to take a stand on. I believe he is. And in the same breath, I remind you that he also referred to himself a shocking number of times as the Son of Man. Real quick, uh, biblical scholars are not agreed that 
the term son of man necessarily is only referring to Jesus' humanity. Reason I say this is because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 in particular, we have a reference to somebody who is referred to as like a son of man that's obviously referring to God. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I bring this up because... Biblical scholars are not unanimously agreed that the term son of man is necessarily referring to Jesus' uh, humanity. By the way, Jesus is the God-man, okay? Uh, he's a unique individual. Um, that being the case, you, you know, you don't, there's not two Jesuses out there. You can't just chop up his, uh, his divinity and humanity into two different segments. No, he's the God-man. That being the case, you, you want to be real careful here because there's more biblical data than meets the eye. By the way, this, this phrase also shows up again um, in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, uh, the apostle John writing says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So, anyway, you get what I'm saying. Let's continue. You know what the son of man means? human. Now that's shocking. Take a stand on that. What Jesus stressed, what Jesus thought was a big deal, what Jesus called himself time and time again was son of man. It's a big deal for a human to be divine, but if you're looking to provoke and if you want to focus in on the astounding claims he made about himself, how about the mind-bendingly revolutionary claim of the divine being human? Weeping, spitting in mud, eating, drinking so much he's accused of being a drunk, letting people clean his feet with perfume, inviting people to touch his wounded sides, humanity. Now that's interesting. Jesus invites us into the full spectrum of human experience, from lament to exhilaration. Got, got to stop. Whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Jesus is inviting us into the full spectrum of human experience. And Jesus is inviting us into lament and mourning and all of that's the full spectrum of human experience. Some of the things you're describing there, Rob, are a result of the fall. And had Adam and Eve told the serpent to take a hike rather than listen to him and disobey God, um, human experience would have never included death and destruction and mourning and sickness and things like that. That's not the full spectrum of human experience. It's the full spectrum of sinful human experience. And everything in between, from basking in the presence of God to cursing at the top of your lungs from the rooftops because God is nowhere to be found, shrieking till your horse, my God, my God, why have you screwed me like this? That's life. That's real. And that is divine. Really? It, that's divine. You're describing the curse as divine. Yeah, does anyone else have a theological problem with what he's saying here? I, you know, because I do. You have shown me how to find God in the full spectrum of human 
experience. You have been an excellent teacher at that. So, there are some thanks. There's a lesson that you've taught me. Now, some warnings. Warnings. First, there is a meta-movement in the scriptures. A meta-movement, okay. Sounds painful. An arc to the unfolding story of redemption. It is the movement from word to flesh. Think of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so there's not a meta-narrative because uh, postmoderns are against meta-narratives, but there's a meta-movement. Uh-huh. Commandments. One of the Just compare this warning of his to the warning that the Apostle Paul gave to the uh, church at Ephesus regarding the ravenous wolves. See, see if the similarities are similar. One of them is don't kill. It's absolute entry base level requirement here. Could you not kill each other? But then the story progresses, it evolves, and so later Jesus says, the greatest love you'd have is if you'd lay down your life for another. And then he gives his life out of love. Mm, so Jesus tells us to give our lives for others, and then he demonstrates how that's done personally. So he sets the prime example there. Um, can we, you talk about how he laid down his life for our sins? Yeah, that would be nice. So the earlier, could you try not to kill each other? grows into, could you love with such fidelity and devotion that you'd actually give your life for another? The command... So apparently you're, you know, this, again, you're the Messiah. You need to give your life for another. And the words to protect and preserve life take on flesh and blood to the point where it's seen as an entire pervasive pattern of life, second nature, in which you seek the well-being of others ahead of your own. Word takes on flesh. This is the story of Jesus, the Word, the creative force, life force of the universe, taking on a body and move. Creative life force of the universe. Whew, that's a weird way to refer to the God of scriptures, the creative life force of the universe. That sounds Buddhist. That does not sound biblical. Moving into the hood. So when Jesus, that's my translation. So when Jesus talks about the kind of life God has for us. He talks about us experiencing in flesh and blood a whole new way of being, serving, caring, discovering, thanking, praying, forgiving, loving, tasting, embracing, doing whatever we do and can do for the least of these. It's an embodied faith, one that's dirty and bloody with sleeves rolled up, sweat on the brow. It's one where there's plenty of wine at the party. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I write this to you. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. How can I say amen to that? Because of how many of you have been challenged about your participation in the life of this church, often with the accusation, what do they believe over there at Mars Hill? As yeah, that would be a great question to have answered. Apparently, we're not going to get the answer to that. As if belief, getting the words right, is the highest form of faith. So belief is getting the words right. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, it's weird because, you know, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, admonishes us, uh, ab us about getting the doctrine right. Is that is that what you mean by getting the words right? Because the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Titus, uh, he, here's what he says to uh, young Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, so that you might... 
Put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And get, get this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Sounds like Rob Bell here is wanting to rebuke Paul for insisting that people hold the trustworthy words and sound doctrine. Let me continue with the Apostle Paul, though, for here for a second. He says, verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, they are empty talkers, and they are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn away from the truth. Uh-huh. Teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. I wonder how much money Rob Bell made on his runaway bestseller, Love Wins. I mean, sounds like he made a lot of shameful gain teaching what ought not to be taught because it isn't true. Just saying. Jesus came to give us life, a living, breathing, throbbing, pulsating, blow your hair back if you have any, tingle your spine, roll the windows down, and drive fast experience of God right here, right now. Word taking on flesh and blood. And so you found yourself defending and explaining and trying to find the... Do you have any biblical passages that say any of that? The words for your experience that is fundamentally about a reality that transcends and is beyond and more than words. So when you find yourself... Hmm. So the question is, what do they teach over there at Mars Hill? And he's basically saying, listen, listen, it's all about a blow-your-hair-back experience with God that transcends words. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, this doesn't sound like biblical Christianity at all. Because, you know, I hate to put it to you, but even the Apostle John put into words his experience of going to heaven. You know, the heavenly vision that's given to us in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. Um, Yeah, he put that into words. Weird, huh? That whole experience got put into words. Hmm. So... You know, let, let, what do they teach over there at Mars Hill Bible Church? Don't try to explain it using words, because how can you? Because your, uh, you know, experience of having your hair blown back by God in this personal relationship, it transcends words. So it'd be silly to try to put it into words. Words, 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 words. Who needs words? Yet the Apostle Paul said that an overseer in the church is to teach the trustworthy word as taught and rebuke those who contradict it. Weird, you know, because the Bible's just full of words. Huh? You know, strange, you know? Tied up in knots, having long discussions about who believes what, a bit like dogs doing that sniff circle when they meet on the sidewalk. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. 
So when you find yourself tied up in that kind of discussion, take a, out a cup and some bread and put it in the middle of the table and say a prayer and examine yourselves. And then make sure everybody's rent is paid, there's food in the fridge and clothes on their backs. Then invite everybody to say yes to the resurrected Christ with whatever yes they can muster in the moment. And then you take that bread and you dip What are we saying yes to? Notice these, now, the communion talk here. So, you know, whenever somebody wants to see what you believe doctrinally, yeah, just ignore them, get out some bread and wine and, and have people say yes to Jesus in whatever way they can say yes in the moment. I don't even know what that means. Dip it in that cup in the ancient future hope and trust that there is a new creation bursting forth right here, right now, and then together taste that new life and liberation and forgiveness as you look those people in the eyes gathered around that table from all walks of life, and you see a new humanity, sinners saved by grace, beggars who have found... What does it mean, sinners saved by grace? What do you mean by that? Because you sure ain't giving us any specifics. ...found bread, showing the other beggars where they found the bread. And in that moment... In that space, in that place, remind yourselves that this is what you believe. Remember, and what is that again? Because I'm I'm a little confused. What exactly is it that you believe? Because it transcends words, but you know it's some kind of an experience you're trying to explain here. Remember, the movement is word to flesh. Beware of those who will take the flesh and want to turn it back into words yeah so you don't even need the bible just you know experience you know the the big sloppy hug of god flowing from this then a second warning there is a question that lingers in the air the question that people actually talk about the question of course is what will happen to mars hill now, please do not be deceived by this question, thrown off by its ubiquity, misled by the way that it is freely, commonly asked, unchallenged, and unquestioned, as if the answer is somehow out there somewhere waiting to be discovered. The way that advertising works is you try and associate the impersonal, inanimate product you are selling with something personal and embodied. Sometimes famous people are paid large sums of money to endorse a product in the hope that whatever this person is known for, whatever they've accomplished or achieved, will in essence rub off on the product. So that you'll think, Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player ever, is talking about this plain white t-shirt that manages to keep its shape around the neck after multiple wearings. So this must be the greatest plain white t-shirt ever. That sort of thing. The effort then is to associate the tangible product with an intangible value or concept embodied by a person. Several years ago, Apple began running those annoying slash clever ads in which the nerdy PC guy has a stilted conversation with the cool Mac guy. Microsoft took a beating in those ads, so they began running a series of counter ads in which groovy hipster folks look at the camera and say, I'm a PC. Once again, trying to associate an inanimate, impersonal product with actual flesh and blood, breathing, living people. You, my friends, have the opposite problem. When people ask, what about Mars Hill? Or what's Mars Hill going to do? Implied and assumed in the question is that Mars Hill is some sort of disembodied reality with a life of its own. But here's the truth. The church is not an inanimate, impersonable, impersonal product. 
There is no Mars Hill in theory. There is no abstract, disembodied entity, Mars Hill, apart from the people in this room who are Mars Hill. So when people say, what's going to happen to Mars Hill, they're asking, what's going to happen to you? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? You are the answer because you are the church. Mars Hill is not a product. It is a gathering of people. You. That's why there's no sign. How does a first... Maybe the people are asking the question, what's going to happen to Mars Hill? Because, yeah, its founder, its rock star pastor, Rob Bell, has moved to Hollywood in order to teach his spirituality to the greater world at large via a television program. And so the question may be along the lines of, can this meeting, this gathering of people survive with the change of leadership? That, that may be the question that's really being asked, don't you think? First person find Mars Hill? Well, you have to meet one. <laughs> remember, remember when Woody yelled at Buzz, you are a toy. I'm Woody yelling at you, Buzz, you are a church. You are a church. You are Mars Hill, you are the answer to the question, what will happen to Mars Hill? And so please, I ask of you, I plead with you to answer well. Bring your friends, give money, get more involved, believe, trust, practice hope. There is an essence to this place, a spirit. That's how organizations and corporations and institutions and movements and causes are. They develop patterns and energies and ethos that manifests itself in fairly consistent ways over time. You know it the moment you walk through the door. You seize, you size a place up. You catch what's in the air. You read the body language of a place. People are welcome here and they know it. Christ is alive here, healing people and liberating and giving new life. There is mission here, cause, purpose beyond these walls. What does any of that mean? And you know it. I know it. It's a reverent hum just below the surface of everything we do here. You can taste it, feel it, smell it. Don't mess with that. Protect that. Preserve that. You know what I'm talking about. If you grumble and complain and become agitated and divisive, you will ruin the pure, sweet, humble, captivating... You mean grumble and complain about the false doctrine of Shane Hips? ...essence that is present in the midst of this community. When in doubt, stop talking and start praying. Breathe deeply. Yeah, see, if you're having doubts about the false doctrine of Shane Hips, you know, the one who leads people in mantra meditation, literally telling them to think of your mind as a monkey in a cage. Now, see yourself distancing yourself from your mind so that you can experience God, you know. Uh, yeah, so if you, you're having doubts about that, stop saying words. Just get to work. Don't question it. Don't be divisive. Don't, don't speak words of doctrine and Bible verses and things like that that will mess up the experience. You just be quiet. And, you know, and serve somebody else. Stay calm. Be cool.
be non-reactive, and then yeah, don't react to the false doctrine, and breathe deeply some more. Once again, Mars Hill is going to be going into new territory, as has happened before. Trying things, experimenting, learning together where the new life is. It's what experimenting and trying to figure out where the new life is. Really, <laughs> good night. What you've been doing from the beginning. If you want this church to be some other church, please leave this church and go to that church. This church. Best advice he's ever given. The parking Literally, best advice he's ever getting. Go to another church quick. Spaces. Then Run for your life. Let me back up the audio so you can hear that again. Holy smokes. Other church. Please leave this church. has happened before trying things experimenting learning together where the new life is it's what you've been doing from the beginning if you want this church to be some other church please leave this church and go to that church this church we could use the parking spaces this this church has its own unique path its own particular DNA. Yeah, unlike any other church on the whole planet. We got our own doctrine, we got our own DNA, we got our own experience. It ain't like any other church anywhere. Whoa. That talk about non Catholicity. And I mean that with a small C, not large Roman Catholic, you know, capital R, capital C. And you must be true to it. Or you will lose something vital to who you are and why God brought you together. In the coming days, the question for each of you is, are you bringing hope and creativity and life here or using your voice and power to cut it down? Do you believe that this church's best days are ahead of you? If your answer is anything other than yes, you are already answering the question. This leads me to a universal truth. People whisper sweet nothings to their lover, but they yell fire. It, right. <laughs> yeah, correct. They do. You know why? Because fire destroys. Fire is a danger. Um, and see, here's the deal. Um, let's just kind of put this in the proper context, Okay. Let's pretend in the Roseboro compound, okay, after spending an evening with my wife, whispering sweet nothings, we fall asleep in bliss in each other's arms. And then later that evening, you know, in the deep hours of the night, I smell smoke. I think, that smells like smoke. And I sit up in bed. And I inhale again. That's smoke. And then I hear the smoke detector go off. Beep, 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 beep. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to yell, fire! How do you get out of bed? Faith, faith. Go get my, go get my daughter. I'm yelling. Now, why would I be doing that with my lovely wife? 
the woman I've been in love with for decades. Why would I yell fire? Because I love her. <laughs> I don't want her to burn up and die. I'd be yelling to my daughter, fire! And yet I've loved her from the moment she was conceived and we first learned that my wife was pregnant with her. Yelling fire is exactly what you would do to save and protect your loved ones. Yelling in that circumstance is not contrary to love. It's motivated by love. So, you know, let's uh, let's see where he goes with this. But, okay, I'm going to back it up just a smidge, and uh, here we go. Sweet nothings to their lover, but they yell fire. We whisper sweet nothings to our lover, but we yell fire. Reflect on this with me. Love whispered. Danger yelled. Fear, it turns out, is often louder than love. So um, in the example you've given, yelling is actually the exact, is the exact thing that love calls for you to do. Sometimes fear is good and yelling even better, especially when there actually is a fire. Yeah, you think false doctrine that sends people to hell um, isn't a danger? It's the ultimate danger. But other times, fear is toxic, destructive, and the opposite of love and trust and hope. Remember that, look for it, call it out, and confront it when you come across it. Fear has no place in this place because this kind of love casts out fear. This is just absurdity. This doesn't even make any sense. Totally avoids the issue. Is there danger in the false doctrine being taught by Shane Hips? Yes. Will it send people to hell? Yes. Well, you better start screaming at the top of your lungs, fire, like hell fire, so that the ones you love in the church that you've been, been attending don't get consumed by it. When you've leaned over and looked into the tomb, when you've ran huffing and puffing to your friends, insisting in between breaths and pants. Um, I haven't gone huffing and puffing and looked in the empty tomb. I wasn't there when it happened. He isn't in there. Fear is no longer the game you're playing. You've been seized by hope, and hope has its own rules. Mm, okay. This doesn't make any sense. And now, after some thanks, a lesson, and some warnings... Let me end with a confession. I have tried my best to live at peace among you. I've done everything I could to the best of my awareness to keep my side of the street clean. I've tried to be a voice of hope, help, healing, and truth to you year after year, Sunday after Sunday. I've tried to apologize whenever I wronged you. I have knocked on some of your doors asking for your forgiveness, and you've been gracious and kind every time. And so, with all these years here, all these experiences, and all those sermons, I confess to you today that I feel like I'm just getting started. Like I'm a rookie, a freshman, a noob. I feel younger. That's how the kids say it. <laughs> I feel younger than ever. I feel like the world is big and wide and open, and things are possible that if they were revealed right now, we'd turn to each other and say, no way, that's awesome. I believe that God has made this day that it's good that you can have joy in it even if you're limping. Can you make this confession with me today? Can you say with me, 
feel like I'm just getting started. You can be old. You can be over 40. You can have a lot of life behind you. And yet you're being renewed. You're being reborn. Your eyes are wide and filled with wonder. You've tasted and you've seen in such a way that you realize you're just getting started. You have beginner's mind. The past and the present and the future begin to meld into one giant eternal now. And you understand in that moment what Jesus was talking about when he said he came to give us that kind of life. I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah, you probably are. I mean, because you're about ready to unleash your heresy on the whole world via your new television show. I invite you to repeat that mantra with me now. <sighs> yeah, sorry, I don't do any mantra meditation. Sorry, I've never been a fan of it. Considering I don't want to open myself up to demonic influence. In quantum physics, we have learned from scientists that when two subatomic particles are bonded, attached together, and then they separate, they exhibit fascinating counterintuitive behavior. Two particles that were once bonded that have separated demonstrate that they are aware of and affected by that particle that they were once attached to. This is called quantum entanglement. You and I, we've been together for a number of years. And now at some level, we're parting, but at another level, we will forever be entangled. <laughs> you might want to cut the cords of that entanglement because, wow, you, you, let me tell you, that's like being entangled with a millstone around your neck and being thrown into the ocean. And I celebrate that. So I stand today in your midst, happy, satisfied, anticipating magnificent tomorrows, feeling like I'm just getting started. And I say until next time with as much love as I can possibly muster, grace and peace be with all of you, your brother, Rob. Okay, so that was the sermon, uh, Dear Mars Hill, um, his farewell address to the folks there at Mars Hill Bible Church, the church that he planted. And uh, I'm officially creeped out. Um, yeah, um, did you hear anything about Christ and him crucified for our sins, the need for sound doctrine, warning against wolves who teach false doctrine. No, it's like, it, no, in fact, this was a sermon preached by somebody who is really a wolf and trying to warn people about shepherds, you know, people who would come along and warn them about uh, the false doctrine being taught there. And uh, he, yeah, <laughs> uh, wolf, wolf teaching his congregation to beware of shepherds. Stay away from those people who would come along with their f true doctrine and and uh, try to tell you about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, and the need to rightly teach that word of God. No, 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 no. We don't need none of those guys. We need experiential wolves. Yeah. So there you have it. Eddie, I don't think I can add anything else to this. What'd you think? Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Yeah. 
Notice the words. Amen.